you would, please be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah 45. We were in the middle of some of this last week, and there was one verse or one phrase that God kept using over and over with Isaiah, and this verse captures that. It says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And throughout the passages that we've been looking at for the past month or so, that phrase keeps coming up, that Jehovah is God and there is none else. And routinely, multiple times, and we're going to see it again today, Lord willing, if we get far enough in Isaiah, every time that Isaiah is stressing this, he also brings up idols. And I think the reason for that, as best as I can tell, is that's the big problem we all have. We either trust God or we trust idols, and there's not anything in between. We go one way or the other. And so Isaiah's been doing this. And last week I mentioned to you a song, and I'll just read the lyrics one more time because I think it's a great introduction to what Isaiah has to say. It's called Second to None. The lyrics are, I will have no other gods before me. Here on bended knee, I will worship and adore thee. Who else can I turn to? You're the only one. You're second to none. You are the king of Israel, the holy one. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. You are the highest. The bright and morning sun, you are second to none. I would hope that that would be the desire of all of our hearts, that God would be first and above everything else, that we wouldn't pursue idols. But I am realistic. I know my own heart. And our hearts are, unfortunately, so fast to create idols. And so we're going to pick up in verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. And Isaiah is again confronting Israel. The Holy Spirit has given him inspired words to tell them. And it has a blend. It's dealing with the Messiah, but it's also dealing with the struggles of our hearts, which is idols. It says in verse 14 of chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabines, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine, and they shall come after thee, and chains they shall come over. And they shall fall down unto thee, they shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else, there is no God. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also confounded all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are maker of idols. But Israel shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in dark place of the earth. 
I said unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared from, declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God beside me? A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Surely say, shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed, and the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And so Isaiah is talking about what's going to happen. He has been highlighting what God's going to do through Israel and God's going to do for Israel. And he's highlighting the fact that all the nations at some point are going to recognize that there's no other God but Jehovah. And so he hits on a few key points right away in verse 14. And so we look at verse 14. He says, Thus saith the Lord, and then he talks about Egypt and Ethiopia and the Sabines. And if I were to summarize what I think is being said in that first verse, in verse 14, it's basically that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what nation, it doesn't matter how far away, it doesn't matter how wealthy, it doesn't matter the stature of the men, whether they're bigger or smaller than Israel. All of them are going to come to recognize Israel is worshiping the one true God. And he highlights that. They shall come over to thee, and they shall be thine, and they shall come after thee in chains they shall come over. And so if you think about the time frame that this is addressing, it's addressing when Cyrus is going to free them from Babylonian captivity. You could also add to that, not Cyrus or his God is going to get in the way of what God is planning to do here. And so it mentions that, and then there's a reference to chains. And I figured, okay, I looked at this and I scratched my head and I scratched it some more. And so I figured, okay, I'll ask our class, does anyone know why it mentions chains in this verse? Verse 14, it says, in chains they shall come over. Roxanne? Probably or possibly is, is a, a definite, you know, maybe, you know, because I, I told you, I, I looked at it and I couldn't figure it out. 
The one thing I could tell you is based on the context, it's not typical captivity. It could be spiritual bondage. I didn't think about that one. But it's not captivity in the normal sense because it's voluntary. They voluntarily come after Israel. So I didn't, I didn't have anything better than that. If any of you discover something, you're welcome to educate me. But I just knew from the context, it couldn't be normal conquest where Israel's conquering them. In fact, Israel more often than not is the one being conquered, not the conqueror. Uh, but that is a good thought, and I'm going to give that some, some consideration. Um, Linda, you had your hand up a moment ago. Did And it, it could possibly be a spiritual bondage that's talking about there. I was not able to find out. And by the way, when I typically haven't been able to figure it out, I've usually went through several commentaries and they don't say anything about it either. Uh, when it comes to the hard things in some of the passages, uh, they don't typically you know, cover it. They just kind of gloss over it and move on. Nancy? I got the impression when it's talking about this, and I could be wrong, but it basically says, they shall come after thee. Uh, it's mentioned multiple times, shall come over unto thee, that's unto Israel. They shall be thine. They shall come after thee. And if you just skip over the, the chains, since I really can't give you a good answer on that, they shall come over. They shall fall down unto thee, they shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in or with thee, there is none else, there is no God. And so the, the impression I got of this verse is through all of the things that are going on, the Gentile nations, at least some of them, it doesn't say all nations, but I get the impression a good number of them, are coming over to Israel and they want to, and uh, Lynette gave me a thing out of Zechariah also that talks about the fact that they'll grab the hem of a Jew's garment and go with them to worship. And so this could be somewhat in the millennium, but there is some level of recognition coming, you know, because you're right, right now they don't, but there's gonna come a day where they're gonna see Israel and recognize Israel's God, Jehovah is the only God. Lynette? Okay. Coming in their fullness of the 
And so Lynette has a cross-reference in 149 that she said ties to Christ's second coming. At this point right here, um, it's hard to know what's talking about Babylon and Cyrus time versus what's talking about the second coming. But there is a recognition which didn't happen, I don't think, at the time that Babylon, of Babylonian captivity as well as Cyrus releasing them that gives a pretty strong indication this is more the second coming. Linda? I got the impression that that was God's way of highlighting some of the more prominent Gentile nations. And so, you know, I didn't, didn't tie it that directly. Um, I looked at as more that the fact all the nations are gonna recognize there's no other God but Jehovah, which would put it more toward the second coming because that's when all nations will see him return and there'll be no doubt. Um, but again, some of this is kind of hard to separate out. Is it talking about Cyrus and his time, or is it talking about the Messiah coming back? The one thing I will say is this passage points out that those who lorded over Israel will come to Israel because of Israel's God. They will recognize that Israel's God has saved them. And so whether it be at that time, which I think was probably partial, definitely when the second coming comes and Christ returns, there will be an acknowledgement by those that are left that Jesus is truly the Holy One of Israel. And so it's a little difficult in verse 14 of knowing exactly when and how the chains fit in but the one thing that I like to always go with is what's obvious. And it's obvious to me that God is not trying to hide what he's doing, that he's wanting people to see what he's doing with his witness and his servant Israel. And that's been the drum that Isaiah has been beating throughout all of this. Now verse 15 kind of highlights the fact that verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior, which almost seems like, well, teacher, what are you trying to tell us? You said God doesn't do it in secret. What is, what is it in us that causes us to think that God is hidden? Our sin. Our sin, that's a very good answer. Okay, we don't see him. He is invisible, so he has not revealed himself other than through Jesus, the Messiah, his son, in a fleshly form. Anything else, Roxanne? Lack of faith and not hiding the word in our hearts. Okay, unbelief would be the way I would summarize what Roxanne just said. Sin, definitely in a generic sense, but a specific sin that causes us to really not see God is our unbelief. And so when it talks about here, verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior, 
I think that's a reflection more on the condition of our hearts, man's hearts, than it is what God's doing. Because if you look at it, was the crucifixion done in a closet? Was Christ's birth done without any kind of hint that Messiah was born? No, the shepherds heard, the wise men knew. So this verse, I think, is an indication of the hearts of men we think God is hidden because of our unbelief, because of our sin. And later, God even comments even more. So that gets us to the fact that the Savior, that's mentioned in verse 15, it doesn't say Israel's Savior, Savior, does it? It says the Savior. And so I want us to recognize that while it's Israel's God, they claim Jehovah as their God. He's a personal God. He'll allow us to cleave to him as our God. It's not just Jews anymore. It's Jew and Gentile that he's reached out to. And he's the Savior, the Savior of the whole world, not of just one nation. Now, he will... Treat Israel special. Now, Israel say, well, if special means I got to go through the Holocaust and all this other stuff, you know, are you sure that's really that special? But the reality is, is their preservation is a miracle of God. Because, and by the way, this is a quick rabbit trail. Why do we see so much anti-Semitism in our world today? Okay, you would think that if we believe in God, there wouldn't be hatred toward the Jews. But the Arabs, I guess, don't Okay, now that, that's a good point that Linda brings up. The, the, um, and I think you could expand it beyond Arabs to just simply saying the other religions of the world. And you don't even have to classify a specific one, but other than Christianity, the other religions. It doesn't even have to be concerning religion. Uh, Satan, I may be misunderstanding this because I'm a new learner, but the way I get it, Satan is the god of this world, and he has a bunch of followers, and that's, is that considered something? No, no, it ties to the other religions, so let, let's clarify what, what Linda has just said, because I understand exactly where she's going on this. In Ephesians, it calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And if you look at it, when Adam and Eve sinned, basically they turned over dominion of this world to Satan. And if you go to Revelation, it talks about Satan's hatred of the woman, the woman being Israel. And if you look at that, Satan is really powerless to attack God himself, to attack Jehovah the only God that there is. So what does he do? He attacks what God loves. 
God loves his creation, in particular the people. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for our sins so that we can have forgiveness and that we can have peace with him and live with him eternally. Israel, because it was the means by which Messiah would come into the world, has been the object of an intense and unique hatred from Satan. And those that are believing in other religions and really Christianity, I hate to use, describe it as a religion, but it's thrown in there with the mix, but it's uniquely different. All the other religions say, if you work hard enough, you can get to heaven. Christianity says, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by God's grace that we're saved through faith. And so here, this is no exception. Israel is hated in that time period. Israel is hated in our time period. And it all gets back to the fact that men love darkness rather than light. And as such, they follow the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. And Satan has a special hatred for Israel. And we've seen it starting to surface more and more in recent days than it had in the past in our country. Yes, ma'am. I think I could summarize what Bobby just said real simple. Our nation has a rich heritage of trusting Jehovah, the one true God. And if you look at our culture today, we have forsaken God as a people. And we're involved in all sorts of idols, which kind of ties right into what we're talking about with Isaiah. And as such... Our culture no longer recognizes that it's important for us to support what God loves, which is his chosen people, Israel. It's also his church, but there's a different set of promises for you and I as the church, which is Jew and Gentile alike. But there's always a special set of promises they made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is for Israel. So... God moves on with Isaiah to contrast the difference between Israel and the Gentile nations. In verse 16, he says, They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are the makers of idols. Who is he talking about in this verse? Okay, you definitely can throw false prophets and false teachers into that, that crowd. Anyone else could belong in that crowd? Okay, put yourself in a time capsule. Go back in history to Israel at the time of the kings. And who were the idol makers and who had the idols? Pardon me? 
Okay, Israel grabbed some of them, but who were the predominant ones that were tied to this? Okay, I think I heard it over here. Pagan nations, all the Gentile nations. Did Babylon have idols? Oh, yeah. Did Assyria have idols? Oh, yes. Did the Canaanites that were not part of Israel have idols? Okay, all of those idols and idol makers are thrown together here. But specifically, I would say that there's a contrast here between what Israel is supposed to be and what the Gentile nations are. And so the first thing I want you to recognize about the Gentile nations is their idol makers and worshipers. And based on this verse, it says they're going to be ashamed, they're going to be confused or humiliated. And all of that kind of is bundled up together. And God doesn't make the distinction in this verse, which it is, but he does in the next verse, verse 17. And this is why I kind of separate the two. Even though there were definitely some in the Israelite camp that worshiped idols, it says, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. And so here's the contrast. You've got the, wor the worshipers and makers of idols and their condition is ashamed, humiliated, and confused. Israel is going to have an everlasting salvation and they're not gonna be ashamed. Look at the last part of verse 17. They're not gonna be ashamed or confused in the world without end. And so eternally, they're going to come to worship Messiah and Jehovah, their God, and they aren't gonna worship the idols. And so there's a contrast. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not an expert on pagan thought. Now I will say this, like everyone else in here, my sin probably has me knowing more about than I realize, but to actually have studied it, that is not what I study. I try and study God's word and try to understand about God. And by knowing the, the truth, when I come across things like pagan ideas, um, they kind of hit a gag reflex, and I hope they do with you. And sometimes they don't. One of the things, though, that I do know is in the pagan ideology, they would basically go and they would conquer another nation. And when they would conquer the other nation, they would say, my God's bigger than yours and stronger than yours because I was able to beat you up and take you captive. And that's kind of what's going on here. Isaiah is highlighting this when Israel is taken captive by Babylon, the pagan or worldly assumption is that Jehovah's been discredited and defeated. Why? Because Israel was defeated and they tie the two together. However, Israel's failure doesn't mean God has failed. God is trustworthy, he is sovereign on his throne. And if we go to the book of Daniel, 
Daniel describes some of the events that occurred during captivity in Babylon, and it's obvious that God still rules in the affairs of men. In fact, I really liked it. If you weren't here Wednesday night, Pastor Aaron went through a particular psalm, and he said, hey, there's this one phrase, where else is it found? And it was found in Daniel chapter 4. Well, Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar, who started out definitely a pagan king. Some believe that he eventually, because of his relationship with Daniel, became a believer in Jehovah. And if chapter four is any indication, he probably was saved out of his paganism. And the reason I say that is because multiple times in chapter four, he highlights the fact that the Most High, referring to Jehovah, rules in the affairs of man. He acknowledges it and gives glory to God. That's kind of what's going on here. The Gentile nations will be saved, but is, or excuse me, they'll be confused and they'll be ashamed, but Israel be saved with an everlasting salvation. This then leads into what Isaiah has been telling us over and over again. He's told us this multiple times. I don't remember exactly how many, but in verse 18, he highlights the fact, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. Creation seems to be one of the key benchmarks that he is bringing up that distinguishes Jehovah from the idols. And so what else does he tell us in verse 18 and 19 about God? There's a lot of things about God's work, but I mentioned the first one, which is God is the creator of the heavens. What else does Isaiah bring up in these verses? Lynette? Lynette brings up a very good point, and that's the fact that those that worship the other gods, which are idols, they're looking for salvation as a physical victory, a victory of their army over, let's say, Israel's army. But God is mentioning here that he's going to save Israel. There's a physical salvation, but there's also a spiritual one. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to distinguish which one is he talking about here. At the time of Babylonian captivity, I would say most of the things are probably a little more of the spiritual salvation. But then when you talk about Cyrus, 
God, without them lifting a finger, without them having an army, saves them from captivity and has Cyrus send them home. And so they're saved, but not the way that men typically think of being saved. And so God has been doing a work with Israel. Isaiah is pointing this out, and he starts by pointing out the fact God created the heavens, that part of God's work is he's the creator. What did he do concerning the earth? Nancy? Okay. He, it doesn't say, I don't know if that established word means that he is continually sustaining it, but that's... I think it does. Basically, he formed and made and established the earth. He also highlights the fact that he hasn't spoken in secret. And he also mentions the fact that he made it to be inhabited. And so if you look at the last part of verse 18, he says he formed it to be inhabited. In our media propaganda of our day, what do you hear about the earth today and mankind? Global warming. Okay, Roxanne, did you have something different? Same thing. If you look at it, the thought process that is being done there is that man inhabits the earth and man is destroying the earth. And some of the things we as mankind have done probably do. But do you think man has the power to warm the globe? Not at all. In fact, I heard someone describe once that if the earth was any closer to the sun, it would be uninhabitable. If it was any further from the sun, it would be uninhabitable. That when you look at all of creation, God has made the earth in just the right environment. And Isaiah tells us here, he made the earth to be inhabited. He didn't make it so that we would have selective inhabitants from mankind. This way all the animals can live and there wouldn't be global warming. He made it to be inhabited. Now, are we doing everything that we're supposed to? Probably not, but God knew that. And the one thing I will tell you is I honestly believe that much of the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the storms and all of those things are catastrophes that God brings about to get man's attention. And the sad thing is, is instead of recognizing God for who he is, we say, oh, Mother Nature has given us global warming because of man's sin, only they won't call it sin, but you could fill that in. And the truth of the matter is, the whole time God's been trying to get man's attention and saying, come to me, trust me, I can save you from whatever's going on in your life. Linda? I hope that now I'm not committing some kind of judgment here, but it seems to me, especially the way the news is reporting these earthquakes and disasters and volcanoes and floods and 
all kinds of stuff that's going on. The majority of it seems to be over kind of in the Middle East right now. Well, the Middle East, the Middle East has always been a hotbed because that's where Israel is and Satan hates Israel. I mean, you pegged that earlier. As far as where the news media focuses, who knows what you know, causes them to focus on what they do. Typically, they go to the latest catastrophe or disaster, and that's what they beat the drum on. And some of the times they might get it right, but a lot of times now, because they don't have a biblical worldview, they get it wrong. And so we have to be discerning when we listen to it, the facts can be interpreted a lot of times in a couple different ways, and so you just have to be real careful on the news. And that's for any news. I'm not endorsing any news group. You hear the facts, and what you need to do is ask God, what are you doing in this? Because the news people, some might say some things, and some of it may be right, but a lot of times they aren't getting what God's doing. They aren't seeing it. Yeah. It's kind of like going online and searching for something. You need to look at all the different websites and then kind of estimate who has the same answer the most. Uh, that's still pretty dangerous. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be more inclined to say read your Bible and look at your Bible and see what's going on around you and ask God to help you to see how it fits because the key thing that we all deal with in our day and age is, is it God's wisdom or man's wisdom? And the sad thing is, is there's a lot of times man's wisdom sneaks into the church and tries to pass it off itself off as God's wisdom. So just be real careful and discerning on that. Let God's word speak. And if it doesn't, then trust God know that he's in control no matter what's going on okay i hope that's helpful to you a couple other things concerning god's work in verse 19 we mentioned earlier he's not spoken in secret it seems to almost be a contradiction but i think even in our discussion this morning you can see how what god's doing appears to be a mystery and secretive to those that don't trust him in faith but God hasn't done it in a dark place of the earth God didn't tell Israel to seek him in vain he was going to protect them he is going to see them through this and the other thing that's there is God speaks righteousness and declares what is right and so we can trust his word we cannot trust man's word. Some may get it pretty close to right, but you need to see how close does it align to God's word. If it aligns to God's word, then accept it. If it doesn't, then be real cautious about what you believe concerning that. Which brings up kind of an interesting thing. I told you I am not an expert on pagan ideas, but as I was reading some commentaries, I thought it was important because you will see this in man's wisdom. Here's some pagan ideas and thinking, and this kind of hints at why evolution is now taught more in schools as a fact instead of a theory, and that is matter 
in the beginning, matter was in chaos. There's a lot of people that think that it was just this big blob of ooze and nasty stuff that was in chaos. Out of the chaos, the gods came into existence. And oh, by the way, if you ever want to know about some of the pagan ideology, all you have to do is read a little bit about mythology. Don't read it to be thinking that's factual, but read it to understand how does an ungodly world think? Because you can't be going around in this world naive about what the world around us thinks. They think of multiple gods coming out into existence. It denies that God is outside of creation. If you look at Isaiah, he keeps mentioning the fact that God has created all this, but he also keeps mentioning the fact that God transcends his creation. His creation could cease to exist and God would still be God. He would still exist. He would still be on the throne doing as he pleases concerning what he creates and what he does. Also, polytheism. I think most of you know that means many gods. All you got to do is look at some of the Hindu artwork and you see enough gods to sink a battleship. I mean, there are just tons of them. Okay. Israel is monotheistic. It, it, it influences those that are not God's people, those that do not know Jesus as their savior. They look at all the gods having equal voice. That's not true. There's only one true God and that's what, it, what Isaiah keeps saying is there's none else. He's quoting God's own saying, Jehovah is the one true God and there is none else. There's no one beside him. But our nations around us, all those that are not believing in Jesus, a lot of them subscribe to multiple gods. Wayne, you had your hand up. I was going to say, every one of those bullet points that you have up there is what's being taught in our public schools. Yes, very much so. These are being taught in public schools as being true. And Isaiah is beating the drum here, and he's basically dismantling just about every one of these. Here's some more. Humans primarily exist to take care of the gods. We can barely take care of ourselves. You've got to be kidding me that I'm supposed to take care of the gods. The gods have no interest in communicating with humans. Okay, many of them are aloof. And when you read mythology, you see them acting like people, but in their own little world, having very little to do with what's happening in our lives. And then mediums and wizards must be consulted to communicate with the gods and discover the future. Now, the thing I want you to know about this is Isaiah routinely has been saying, can they tell the future? And the answer is no. And then he turns around and he says, but Jehovah can. Jehovah is picking Cyrus in the days ahead to basically save his people. And so over and over again, he's refuting this pagan theory and pagan ideas. And so that brings us to verse 
20. And, and I wanted to introduce that this way because if you read verse 20, and I'll put it up on the screen, it says, Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who, have declared, who hath declared this from ancient time? And so what he's saying here is come present your case. Let's have a, a debate or an argument or a court case to decide who is really deity. That's what the dispute is. And Isaiah has been doing this over and over and over because he's trying to get through really the blindness of man's unbelieving heart. And he brings us up and he says, come present your case. Assemble together, you that are escaped of the nations. Basically, verse 20 highlights who he wants to come together, which is those that are of the Gentile nations. He says they have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven image and pray to a God that can't save. And then he says, bring them near, let them take counsel together. So in effect, he's saying, okay, let's judge between you and your gods and Jehovah, Israel's God. Kind of reminds me of Elijah, where he gets on Mount Carmel and he says, choose you this day who you will serve, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians, all of these idols, or the one true God, Jehovah. And they have a demonstration on Mount Carmel. Well, that's the same kind of thing that God is highlighting here. And he highlights the fact, show me where they've told the future. He basically says, who has declared this from ancient time? And he's talking about what's going to happen in the future. And then he follows it up and he says, who hath told it from that time? And then he says, have not I, there is no God beside me. And so when it comes to the future, mystics are always trying to draw people in. And they're trying to draw them in with the idea of, we can tell you what's gonna happen in the future. I want you to know God's word tells us what's going to happen in the future. But more importantly, it tells you and I what do we have to do so that we can have an eternity with God in heaven? Or what do we have to choose not to do to have an eternity apart from God in a place of condemnation that is typically called hell? Roxanne? Okay. Verse 22, which is up here, it says, Look unto me and be saved. Israel, right? It says all the ends of the earth. It doesn't say just Israel. And so God, through Isaiah, is introducing the fact that Messiah isn't coming just to redeem Israel, although that is one of the primary things that he mentions, but he's coming to redeem all those who will believe on him. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're gonna pick up survivors of the nations. We covered the fact that to present their case and dispute deity, there's no knowledge from the idol worshipers. They're coming from a position of ignorance. 
and they're encouraged to work together. Next week, we'll pick up on the fact that only God can do certain things. And so we'll highlight the difference between God and the idols starting in verse 21. So if you want to read from there to the end of the chapter, I was thinking we'd get done today, but I never go fast enough. Sorry about that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you that Jesus, your son, came that we might know you and have peace with you through the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, as we come into this time of worship, may we exalt Christ highly. May we thank him as we come upon a time of thanksgiving for the love that he showed to die so that our sins could be washed away. We pray that you would be with Pastor Aaron, give him the words to say, May all of us rejoice and point to Jesus as we worship together in Jesus' name. Amen.